The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say. Church, with Psalm 46 before us today, let me just ask the obvious question I know you're asking yourselves. What's the deal with active noise-canceling headphones? Right? I mean, okay, go, go with me on this one. I, I have a pair of wireless earbuds that I wear when I run, and they have a setting for active noise-canceling, which effectively eliminates the external sound of my location and helps me listen to the podcast or music, but they also have a setting to purposefully allow noise in, which helps me hear road noise and not die while I am running on the back roads of Flushing. Maybe you've been on a plane, train, or subway car recently, and you've noticed someone wearing headphones who just seems to be oblivious to the loud noise around them, noise-canceling headphones. Maybe you're a fan of American football and you see the coach pacing on the sideline with headphones on and you wonder how on earth they can hear what the staff are saying to them over the noise of crowds, 70, 80, 90,000, 100,000 strong sometimes, noise-canceling headphones. Maybe you have some AirPods Pro or some other pair of headphones that has a noise-canceling setting you like to use to focus on the music or audiobook or sermon from First Presbyterian Church of Flint that you just happen to be listening to. Active noise-canceling headphones are a relatively old technology by technology standards. They were developed by the guy who started Bose Corporation, shown here, Dr. Amar Bose, an engineering professor at MIT in the second half of the 20th century. He became obsessively infatuated with audio engineering, and he started a company to produce better-sounding speakers. On a plane ride in the late 70s, Dr. Bose realized that the headphones Sony was selling alongside of their throwback technology Walkmans were useless in the cabin of the plane due to the noise in the cabin. He decided to start sketching out some plans for a pair of headphones that would cancel out the sound in the immediate area. And here is how it works. Sound is often visualized as a wave with both a height and a length. The height is called amplitude, how loud the sound is. And the length of a wave is called wavelength. It tells you whether a sound is high-pitched or low-pitched. A sound wave may look like this, with peaks and valleys arranged in various lengths, all of which communicates to us music or speaking or whatever it is that you're listening to. Now, Dr. Bose suggested making headphones that also had a microphone built into it, that it could listen to the sound waves coming from the ambient noise around you, and then it would instruct the headphones to play back an equal and opposite noise to what it was hearing. Because, science nerds, if you take this sound wave and play the opposite wave at the same time, the waves cancel each other out, and you hear nothing. So Dr. Bose did just this, and in 1989, he sold the first sets of noise-canceling headphones to commercial pilots, and in the year 2000, the first quiet comfort headsets were released to the public with the technology 
on full display. And 23 years later, nearly every major headphone manufacturer has a version of active noise canceling, but it's all built on the same science that if you take two equal and opposite sound waves and play them on top of each other at the same time, the result is silence. And that silence allows you to hear what you're listening to with greater clarity. The 46th Psalm is well known and beloved for a few reasons. Most notably, I'd argue, is the interjection of God's own speech in verse 10, where God addresses the nations, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. From coloring books to bracelets to typography on pallet wood to tote bags to t-shirts to necklaces to books to songs, you cannot escape the ubiquitous presence of the phrase from verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I can think of at least three different spiritual-themed retreats I've been on in college, seminary, or as a new pastor in which Psalm 46.10 played a key role. The rest of the imagery of this psalm may be interesting, but if we're honest, it's verse 10 that we often return to as Christians. We, we long to be people who are able to, in fact, slow down and exercise that gift of stillness. We, we want to be people who are able to, uh, to pay attention to what God is saying so that we might know God more. And so we end up turning Psalm 46 verse 10 into an exercise in morality, uh, a behavioral statement. We, we start interpreting Psalm or verse 10 in such a way that we start asking, okay, well, what are the specific things I need to do and not do in order to be still before God? What are the habits and practices and disciplines I need to cultivate? And what are the vices I need to reject in order for being still to be a more routine action for me? We turn God's speech in verse 10 to be still and know that I am God into a task to do, an achievement to unlock, something to work toward. But here's the deal. I am not certain that Psalm 46, verse 10, is the invitation we think it is. In fact, I don't think verse 10 is an invitation at all. I think it is something else, something more profound, something far less practical for us. But let's get into this psalm. If you have your pew Bibles handy, you'll want to find your way to the book of Psalms. And once you're in the book of Psalms, which I think you could reasonably find by opening your Bible to about the halfway point, you want to head to number 46. Psalm 46 is another psalm that is attributed to the sons of Korah, the Korahites, the, that temple praise band who wrote Psalm 42 last week, among others. And that makes sense, of course, because Psalm 46 is part of that second division of the book of Psalms. It's a collection of about 11 hymns that were written by this band, the Korahites. This psalm, however, has an additional note in the heading of our Bibles. If you look right at the top, to the leader, it says, of the Korahites, fine, according to Alamoth, a song. Now, if you came to church today hoping to find out what an Alamoth is, you're going to leave church today seriously disappointed. 
because we don't know. Some interpreters think it's like an instrument, like an oboe. Uh, others think it's a group of young, unmarried female singers. Others think it's a musical style or a tempo. We aren't sure because whatever Alamoth is, we don't have them around anymore to know. But whether or not this psalm was intended to be played or to be sung or by, to say by whom, it, that's somewhat incidental to what we're doing here today. This psalm is about something more than just the style it was written in. Psalm 46 has been called Luther's psalm, arguably, since Martin Luther would write his most popular hymn, Ein Feisterberg, Ist unser Gott, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, as a loose paraphrase of Psalm 46, which, incidentally, we are going to sing after this sermon, so gear up. Bach would take those musical themes from Luther's hymn and write a whole cantata on Psalm 46. Pachelbel would set a version of this psalm to music in German. Other composers came up with versions in Latin and French and so forth. And in our day, a quick Spotify search reveals over 70 different recordings of Psalm 46 set to a variety of modern musical styles. So needless to say, here we are yet again with another evocative psalm, one that is memorable and important and lends itself nicely to be sung and to have music made in its name. What else do we need to know about Psalm 46? Well, we should know that Psalm 46 is divided internally into three stanzas, each one marked by another strange, untranslated Hebrew word, selah, which is either an instruction to the congregation to rest pause and reflect, or it's an instruction to the band, and it means, and I'm only half kidding, here is where the face-melting guitar solo goes. I'm kidding about the face-melting part, but many scholars do think that it was a cue to the musicians to swell their instruments and play a short interlude to help the congregation pause and reflect on what they just heard. We don't know exactly what Selah means, but we see that it is used in Psalm 46 to divide the psalm into three stanzas of equal parts. Do you see it there in the text right at the end of verse 3? It's italicized into the indented into the right. You can find it at the end of verse 3. You can find it at the end of verse 7. You can find it at the end of verse 11. And in these three stanzas, there is a tension that we might call between the calamitous trouble of the world and the dependable assurances of God. Let's take a look. Take a look at part one, verses one to three, verses about the natural world. We begin with an assurance of God, verse one. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear. Then we read of the terror of the natural world, verses 2 and 3. The earth changes, the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, the waters roar and foam, the mountains tremble with its tumult. So here in the first part, you have the assurance of God's help, and you also have the troubles in the natural world also. Church, I preached this sermon on yet another air quality alert day. When the raging wildfires of west-central Canada this time are kicking up particulates, 
which are carried by the wind hundreds of miles and causing us to not linger too long outdoors until it subsides. I preach this sermon as global temperatures continue to surge to their highest levels on record, causing all sorts of unpredictable weather swings. I preach this sermon just five months after two earthquakes rocked Turkey and northern Syria in February, causing an estimated 60,000 deaths in a matter of moments. I preach this sermon as Ethiopia and Somalia and East Africa are currently in an unprecedented drought and hunger crisis. Do we need any more reminders that the natural world seems to be shaking and roaring and foaming and trembling, yet Psalm 46 says, despite these things taking place, we still have a place of refuge and hope within the presence of God, and so we ought not to give in to the fear, which otherwise seems perfectly legitimate. Why not? The psalm says, because God is our refuge and our strength. Fine, but easier said than done sometimes, right? A similar tension comes in part 2, verses 4 to 7. Verses not about the natural world anymore, but now verses about the political world. You zoom in from the wild landscapes of the world, now in verses 4 to 7, to a particular location, a particular city, a place of governance and industry and people and business. And there, you also have assurance. You've got good news. There's a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, verse 4. God is in the city, it shall not be moved, verse 5. God will help it when the morning dawns, verse 6. God utters his voice, verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us, God is our refuge. But you also have trouble and bad news too. Verse 6, the nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms totter. The earth melts. Again, we're stretched between the good news that God is with us in the midst of our civic life and the troubling news of war, oppression, greed, and national upheaval taking place. I preach this sermon as the war in Ukraine continues to rage, having displaced over 13 million people as atrocities and death continue to be dealt out daily. I preach this as armed militia groups have now controlled 40% of Burkina Faso and have cut off vital humanitarian aid and increased the cost of food by 30%. I preach this sermon as civil war, severe floods, and brutal droughts have ransacked South Sudan, destroying both crops and farmland and have enabled vigilante groups with access to weaponry to harass, detain, and kill aid workers. I preach this sermon as over 100 armed groups are locked in conflict this morning for control of the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. I preach this as millions of Afghan citizens are currently unable to afford basic needs as the fragile economy in Afghanistan is ready to collapse and nearly 90% of the population is living in poverty. Yet even while the nations are in an uproar and kingdoms are tottering and the earth seems to be melting, part two of Psalm 46 reminds us of the assurance that somehow God is in the midst of this place, that somehow God will provide rivers and streams to make the city glad. Psalm 46 reminds us that somehow God is still with us and that God is a refuge. But church, do you sense the tension in the psalm? 
do you sense the conflict here between these two simultaneous realities? In part 3 of Psalm 46, verses 8 and 9, we again see that conflict and tension between the good news and the hard news. And this time, it is on the same lines. It's not easily separated. We read in these verses words like words of conflict and terror, words like desolation, words like war, bows, spears, shields, words that remind us of the implements and effects of war and war making. We might as well go ahead and add nuclear weapons and advanced artillery and high-powered assault weapons and landmines and tanks and drone strikes. But all around those words of terror, we read about what God is doing to end those implements of war. Verse 8 and 9 reminds us that God brings desolation to the earth in the form of making war to cease. God breaks the bows, shatters the spears, burns the shields, dismantles the tanks, digs up the landmines, decommissions the nuclear weapons, melts the drones and the missiles. The tension in part three is the tension between God's trajectory of peace for all things and our insistence on making war and selling arms and spending trillions to ensure we have the biggest, best, strongest killing machines on the planet. We will not sate our thirst for war, and so Psalm 46 reminds us that one day God will put an end to it forever. There is an intrinsic hope in this, a sense that what God will do, but it comes also in the midst of all that we currently observe, a world torn apart by war and the rumor of war. Do you sense the tension in this psalm between what we hope to be true, what we long to be true, and what we currently see all around us. And then, church, we arrive at verse 10. Beautiful, provocative verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. With no preamble, with no dialogue mark, with no sense of entrance, God intrudes into the tension of this psalm and makes a declaration. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted. I am exalted. What are we going to do with this verse in light of the tension of this psalm? What I like to imagine in Psalm 46 is that the tension we sense between the good news of God, the hope of God, and the terror of the present world I want to see it not as a choice between two realities. It's not a fork in the road where you just have to choose the road that leads to refuge and strength and not to war and suffering. Rather, I want to think of it as two different sound waves. You have the noise of the world, the noise of the natural world rising up in opposition to our perpetual pollution and abuse. You have the noise of national turmoil, the sounds of economic collapse, income disparity, racial prejudice, and so forth. You have the noise of war, noise of suffering, noise of pain. And all of that is fully part of our experience as humans on planet Earth in 2023. It is the ambient noise of our present moment. Yet at the same time, Through the scriptures, we are able to hear a different noise, a counter noise, a sound wave whose peaks and valleys are opposite to those of this world. It's a noise of assurance and hope and love and mercy. It's a noise of compassion 
and forgiveness and help and generosity and justice. It's a noise that reminds us of what God is doing in the midst of this present age. It's a noise that bears witness to the work of God now, no matter how calamitous the world appears. It's the sound wave of God's promises to us in Scripture. The sound wave of God's promises to us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And just like those noise-canceling headphones, the end result of these two sound waves is stillness, silence, quiet. It's finally a space to sit and to find that all along, no matter how despairing the world appears and how awful things look, no matter how our lives feel like they are reeling and our hearts are sorrowing, there, present with us, is the God we know in Jesus Christ. And God is saying to us what God has been saying to us since the beginning. Hush. Be still. Know that I am God. I am exalted above the terrors of this earth. I am exalted above the calamity of the land. There's an ancient midrash on the story of Moses in the desert when he glimpses the burning bush, and the midrash goes like this. How long had the bush been burning in the desert before Moses noticed it? We like to think it was immediate. The bush caught on fire, Moses saw it and went over. But many Jewish rabbis wonder, was the bush burning for days? Weeks? How long was God waiting to speak to Moses before Moses drew near to sit and hear what God would say? Psalm 46 shapes us to admit and own up to the present suffering of this world, but it also shapes us to plunge into the depths of Scripture, to find here God's promises of a counter sound wave of assurance and hope. And in the end, a life spent meditating and considering the Scriptures opens our heart and our mind to hear the soothing voice of God murmuring amidst all the pain and hurt, shh, know that I am God, not you. I will be exalted, not the politicians. I will be exalted, not the war makers. I will be exalted, not those who prey on the weak and the marginalized. I will be exalted, God says, and there is not one thing in heaven or on earth that will prevent my purposes from being realized. For though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is our ruler yet. Together. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org 
You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube, but better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.